if you have your Bibles. Uh, me and Jonah today, uh, give you a second. It's, it's a little uh, difficult to find. I, it's just because it's just a page and a half, right? So sometimes it's difficult to, to find. Um, uh, it's, you know, if you're in, if you're in um, Psalms or Isaiah, go to the right. Uh, you get into some of the stranger names, you're close, you know. You get Zechariah, you've gone too far. Matthew, way too far. Back it up just a little bit. Somewhere about, you know, about there. Uh, it's helpful to have a Bible. We're in Jonah. We've been going through this uh, masterpiece, uh, this uh, ingenious work of art and theology that is also has these elements of uh, ancient wisdom literature, something to be revisited to learn from about how to live life. And so we've been walking through this um, book. And uh, Jonah, this guy, this was a prophet, uh, a spokesperson for God, but he was also uh, a rebel, and uh, that runs from God. He's also a legendary thrower of pity parties, like just the best ever uh, at throwing pity parties. And so uh, he, we arrive at today at chapter three, which is, um, if this was a different story, if chapter four didn't exist, chapter three would be like this triumphal, like this, this, this huge crescendo of all that's happened and we would just like celebrate the end. But chapter four exists, so it makes three a little more complicated. Uh, it, it's not so much the finale as is it, it's more of a reset, right? It's more of a, yeah, it's almost like a starting over. So uh, like Jonah 1, 1 begins this way. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, that's Jonah 1.1. Jonah 3.1 says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying. And back to the beginning, Jonah 1, the way that we started this way, the very beginning of the story says this, the Lord of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Three where we're going to be today says this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it the message I will tell you. This is on purpose, clearly. And then three begins this way, the word of the Lord, uh, verse three in both chapters, the, Lord, uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And then over in chapter three, this is how it starts today. Our text today starts. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, the message I shall give you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, right? So clearly the author is saying we're resetting the story. We're starting over. The first time Jonah gets up, Here's the word, flees from God's presence. Second time, this time he gets up and God, he, the word of the Lord comes to him a second time, he gets up and he goes. The will of God is gonna be done, right? And so it's gonna happen the way that he wanted. But Jonah's not the same person, right? Like he's been through some stuff, uh, like the inside of a fish, right? Like he's been through, through some things. He's faced death. He has experienced magnificent grace, right, in God's rescue. He ran away from God, but ends up meeting God in a storm and in a fish, right? So all of this has happened. He's prayed this amazing song because God rescued him by swallowing up in this fish, and then it, chapter two ends with the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. 
So that's what he's been through. He's, he's a different person. He's been through a lot. He's experienced God as both judge and savior. And now he has a big task in front of him, right? He's got a long journey ahead of him. He's got to go to Nineveh now, which is a long way away in the opposite direction of where he was. And he's got a long path, a lot of time to think about it, uh, a lot of think about what's going on. He's going to a dangerous part of the world to do a very big job. And this is what happens in chapter three. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. (laughs) They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. What a crazy turn of events. Right? Like the prophet, though, in this huge pity party. By the way, pity party gets worse. Like it's real worse. He wants to be killed because a plant dies later in the story. It's amazing. Like he just throws this huge pity party because God did this amazing thing. You see how this is like a Rudy moment right, without chapter four, right? If like, like 311 is like, and they celebrated Jonah and built statues to him, yay. And that's just a whole different story. But chapter four is there and it's this really confusing thing. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. Ah, oh, it's so, so good. I love it so much. All right, so here's what's going on. So uh, in this story, um, Nineveh is this, I mean, not just in the story, but everywhere. Nineveh just represents just a bad, evil place, a wicked, wicked place. Uh, God has sent people, has sent Jonah to Nineveh because of the injustice. Like God despises injustice. So he, he hear, has heard about the injustice, and as a matter of fact, even the king of Nineveh, like when he issues his order, like part of his order is sackcloth, ashes, everybody, but also the animals. Also, stop doing wicked stuff, right? Turn from violence. The king knows who they are. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a verse, uh, another prophet uh, says this, um, Nahum writes about, uh, writes about, writes about Jonah, or sorry, writes about Nineveh and says that it is a city filled with blood. It says that there's so many bodies in Nineveh that people just trip over them in the streets. 
Like that's how it's described. A wicked city full of violence, an evil place without justice. Um, so there's this thing about humans um, where we come into the world, we come into the world, uh, you know what? In Genesis uh, chapter of very beginning, so there's this, this amazing thing happens, right? So God creates the whole world, and uh, Genesis chapter 2, uh, he's going through how he creates everything, he puts the people in the garden, and um, he creates man and woman, places them in this garden to tend, tend it and care for it, uh, and the end of chapter 2 ends in the weirdest way to me. It says this in verse 25, in the story of all of creation, there's this, here's the verse tacked onto the story of creation, 225, and the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I mean, that's a weird piece of information, right? God made everything. By the way, they were naked, didn't care. Okay, great. But then sin enters the world, right? Adam and Eve take the fruit, they eat, they disobey God, they decide to try to lay hold of the blessing themselves. And it says this in 3.7. When they take, this, they take the fruit, the first thing that happens is this. They take the fruit, they disobey God, they eat, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, made, and they sewed fig, uh, fig leaves together and made themselves a loincloth. Here's why like, I think that's so important. I think it tells us about our condition. I think there was a time before the fall without sin when we are so outward focused we don't think about ourselves at all. The second sin enters the world, we become uh, this great phrase, this German monk, or priest, later priest, monk then priest, uh, named Martin Luther said this. He said, we come into the world curved in on ourselves, thinking about ourselves constantly, incurvitus in se is what he wrote. We are curved in on ourselves. That we not only use physical, but spiritual goods for our own purposes. That all things we come into the world seeking ourselves only. If you do not believe me, I assume you don't have kids. You just come into the world this way. I didn't teach my kid to be selfish. He just came in the world that way. Like, I didn't teach him to be disobedient. Just came into the world that way, like I did in my father and my, his father before him. We come into the world curved in on ourselves, obsessed with us and what we must have for ourselves. And uh, he says that, Luther says that basically despite our best efforts, no matter what we do, even when we're trying to serve and love other people, uh, it's almost impossible to escape the gravity of self-interest. He says that uh, most of the time we're not even aware of it. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, uh, Jeremiah, another prophet, right, wrote this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can even understand it? The human heart is corrupt. We are deceitful about our own pursuit of our own self-interests. Uh, uh, so sometimes we'll think that we're doing good. Uh, Lewis writes about, C.S. Lewis writes about uh, how our virtues, things that look moral and good, go sideways sometimes when they're not ordered properly. So for example, you could look at something and say, what's the most pure thing that you could find? A, a, a mother's love for her child, Right? Uh, a mother's love for a child. And that is a beautiful thing. But it is possible to love a child in such a way that it really feeds your own ego and your own self-interest. That you find out later, after a, a lifetime, you look back and, and the son grows up and leaves or doesn't love you like, like you think that this child should, and you look back and go, you know what? Like, I think that I was selfishly loving this child. That's act an absolute real possibility in the world. To, 
to, to pervert even something as beautiful as a mother's love. Or to think, hey, I'm going out to work and I'm just doing good. I, I work this hard to raise money to support, to, support, to support my family, to love my family well. And I, I do this and I'm, I'm generous in, in all of these ways. And then you look back at life and you find that your heart has been deceiving you all along. And really the work was where you found your value. Like our hearts deceive us constantly. We're co- even in our things that we do that are good, we are so often pursuing our own self-worth. Uh, T.S. Eliot, the poet, author, has this uh, play about uh, the execution of, of uh, the, the martyrdom of, of Thomas Cramer. And, uh, um, Cramer, sorry. And uh, in the play, uh, there's this temptation moment. It mirrors the temptations of Christ, but then there's this fourth temptation uh, that comes to, uh, to Cramer, and the temptation is go ahead, submit to martyrdom, be killed, everybody will think well of you. And the response he says is, man, what a wicked heart I have. They could take martyrdom and make it about me. The heart just does that, man. We can take a good thing, be engaged in a good thing for literally, in my case, sometimes a decade and look back. You could pastor a church for a decade and look back and go, you know what? That might have been about me. My ego and my need. It's very, very possible. Our hearts are so, so deceitful. And there are consequences for this, right? The consequences play out in the rest of human history. So the next chapter after the the fall, you get Cain, the son of Adam and Eve. They, Cain gets all bent out of shape about... Abel being like more popular or he thinks he sees Abel as a threat and so he gets all upset because God doesn't like his sacrifice and so he murders his brother. He looks at this perceived threat and says, you know what, my life would be better off without him and he kills him because he's so curved in on himself and then you go just a little bit further uh, and oh, here's this amazing verse, I love it so much. Uh, it's, uh, they're going through these this descendants here and it says uh, all the different descendants and it gets to this uh, verse 23 and 4 says, um, no, sorry, no, back a little bit, 19. It says, uh, going through this genealogy and also you get this dude named Lamech and 19 says, and Lamech took two wives. So the name of one was Ada and the name of the other was Zillah. Why did Lamech take two wives and why is it called out in scripture? Uh, because it's not supposed to happen that way and Lamech did it because he could. It's what he wanted and so he did it. As a matter of fact, it goes on to say that he killed the dude just because he felt like it. The dude offended me, so I killed him. Lamech brags about the power he has. It goes on and on and on through history. As a matter of fact, in 6.5, it gets so bad that before the God says, look, <laughs> humans are just awful all the time. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that the intention and all the thoughts in his heart were only evil continually. Why? Curved in on ourselves constantly thinking about what we could have for us. It leads to building powerful cities, right? You go through these genealogies and these, these powerful leaders always end up building cities, right? Because what better way to make a big name for yourself and protect everything that you have than to build a big city with big walls, right? So they begin to build cities for themselves and this, it, it goes all the way, you get, you get into Genesis a little bit further and they, they're building this huge plain, this huge, or sorry, in the plain of Shinar, they build this huge tower so everybody will know who they are and they'll make their own name great and God just comes down and confuses their language and it's called the Tower of Babel because it's where God confuses their languages. They build these cities and they build these towers to make much of who they are. 
then you get into Genesis 18, Sodom and Gomorrah just becomes just, it's it's so terrible. It says the cry came up from God, came up to God about how terrible this place was. Uh, Where is it here? Yeah. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done all together according to the outcry. The crime and the evil in the cities get so bad that God hears about it. Like that's what it talks, that's how, that's how the language is, is, is set for us. These cities seem to somehow concentrate the evil inside of them. I think, I don't think, the, cities aren't bad at all. God loves cities, obviously. That's what he's sent someone to Nineveh. He loves cities. As a matter of fact, you get to Revelation and we aren't in a garden anymore, but a, a city. I'm not saying cities are evil. I'm just saying when you get this many people together and you get this many people in one place, what ends up happening is that structures begin to set up and people will always use positions of power to get what they can for them. And here's why that's a big deal. Because nothing is for free and it always comes at the cost of someone else. When I begin to advantage my power for what I can have for me, it's going to come at the cost of someone else, right? That's injustice. And it gets to the cities, it gets to the point where violence is a thing. If I can get away with killing someone, I'll do it to get what I can have for me. That's what's happened in Nineveh. It's become so corrupt, people are doing whatever they want, it's a problem. We humans care deeply about justice. I, I would argue for biblical reasons. I don't know why, if you don't believe in a God, why you would care about biblical justice or how you defend, ju- or sorry, how you would care about justice or how you could defend your view of justice. But if there's one God who says this is how it's supposed to be, then, then now we have an idea of what justice is supposed to be. And, and so we care about justice among uh, humans, uh, among each other, because we know, according to scripture, that Humans are created in the image of God. They have value just because God made them and, and they carry his image in them in some amazing way. So we care about justice, that, that, that what happens, especially Christians, what happens to others matters and it, when awful things happen to people, that is not justice and we care. But here's the problem. We seem to be incapable of justice as a, as a, as a race of humans. Like we, we seem incapable of possibly doing justice or having a society that's just or even in our own hearts carrying justice around. History has shown over and over and over again in scripture and in other places that humans will redefine morality, what's good and what's bad to advantage themselves. We'll define what is good and bad based on what is good for us and take advantage of the weak. And it always, always leads to violence. It's almost always true in human history when the people who are powerless, finally, if they ever get a chance to be in power, do you know what happens? They become tyrants as well. Power seems to corrupt us because we are so curved in on ourselves. And here's the good news, though. Because that's real bad news, right? Here's the good news. Is that the God who made all of creation cares deeply about justice? Because he cares deeply about people. And injustice harms people. So he cares deeply about justice because he cares so deeply about us. Now, there's this great verse in Amos, another prophet. Uh, Amos 3, and it says this, One day I will punish Israel for its transgressions. 
I will punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altars shall be cut off fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house and the house of Ivy shall perish and the great house shall come to an end, declares the Lord. He says somewhere elsewhere in uh, Amos, he says that uh, I see what you've done. I see what's going on. I see what you've done and what I need and said to happen is, here's what it says. Sorry, I was supposed to read Amos 5. Huge mistake, my fault. Here we go. Here's what it says. Seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out in a fire against the house of Joseph and devour, uh, devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast righteousness to the earth, seek good and not evil that you may live, so the Lord of God of hosts will be with you and save you. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph." He cares about justice everywhere because of the harm it does to the people that he loves. So he's pushing it in Israel. He pushes it everywhere. God cares and tells people to care about justice. He sends Jonah to Nineveh because of its lack of justice. He cares deeply about justice because he cares deeply about people. So Jonah shows up and he preaches. He comes to this huge city, right? Uh, it's just enormous. Like the other people outside of the scriptures talk about the enormity of this city. Like it's something that they've never ever seen before, never been since, right? So this huge, huge city, and he shows up there and he begins to preach. Jonah began to go in the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I wonder if that was his old sermon. I also wonder, yeah, is this, is this whole heart in it? I don't know. Like, is this his best sermon? Was he stay up, staying up late at night trying to think of illustrations? Or is he just like phoning it in? I don't know, man. He, his heart doesn't seem to be in it. But he just says, hey, 40 days, Nineveh's gonna be overthrown. Do with that what you want. And he just goes around saying this, right? But God does something with his words. And the people hear. God's gonna overturn the city. God's overturned cities before. And this amazing thing happens in verse five. The people of God, Nineveh, believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The people repent. They hear this and they repent. Even the king repents. The king hears about it, does the same thing. Animals gotta do it too. And here's the reason why. Maybe he'll change his mind. God's gonna come and destroy us. We believe him. Maybe if we stop doing what we're doing, maybe if we show him we're sorry for what we've done, maybe he will not destroy us. So the text doesn't tell us enough for us to know whether or not this was just, whether or not it was true repentance. You know what I mean? Like, are they, did they just say, oh, look, there's a God out there somewhere and we're just gonna add him to our giant catalog of gods we already have? Or is it like, some, like you know, is it real change? We know at least some people changed. Jesus, is t- <laughs> so, here's, so Jesus is telling the story. By the way, Jesus, oh man. So Jesus tells the story. Uh, these, uh, these religious leaders come and show up and they're just like, hey man, uh, Jesus, like, uh, show us a sign. Like, show us a sign that you are who you say you are, right? And Jesus has been doing a bunch of miracles, right? And they're like, show us a sign. And he, he says to them, he, call, well, he's, he, he calls them names. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. You'll get no sign for you. That's what he says. No sign for you. Other than the sign of Jonah. And then he says this. He says, people, the people of Nineveh, some of the men from the people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment to stand in judgment over you because at least they heard his message and repented and you've heard my pet message and you haven't repented. So at least some of them will be there. Like at least some of the repentance was real, but we know it wasn't lasting. We, we know it wasn't generational because Nineveh comes up again 
and they're doing wicked again, and they end up getting destroyed. And like, we know that it wasn't like this. They weren't like sending out missionaries in the next 100 years, right? Like they, we know it wasn't a lasting thing, but there was this repentance, and the crazy thing happens when they repent. This crazy thing happens. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That's crazy, right? I mean, like you get how insane that is. Bodies in the street. We're sorry, we won't do it anymore. Ashes, we believe that you are powerful. We we believe that you'll overturn. Dust, ashes, sackcloth, we'll not do it anymore. We relent from this, we'll stop doing it. And God says, okay, well then I'm not gonna destroy you. Here's the thing. I mean, Jonah's got a point. Right? I mean, he's got a point in being mad, right? Like, he's furious, and here's why he's furious. Where's the justice in that? They've done all this evil. Where is your justice? Where's the justice? And what God goes on to teach Jonah in full, we'll talk about this more later, but what God goes on to teach Jonah is his desire to forgive is so much stronger is so much more overwhelming than anything that we could ever imagine his mercy is an ocean that his desire to forgive is so great he is so quick he is slow to anger but quick to mercy that's why Jonah's mad I knew that you were like this that you would immediately move to mercy that you would immediately move to forgiveness and I want justice here's Jonah's issue he can't forgive. He can't forgive. And, and here's why he can't forgive. Because forgiving is hard. Like, forgiving's hard. Like it's really, really difficult to forgive. He can't forgive. And I feel like Jonah has a point. He goes outside the city and he says, I don't want to live in a world like this. And he says, probably something to the effect, or at least he feels something to the effect, because I've felt this way before. Jonah, shouldn't I forgive? And Jonah says, hey, it's really easy for you to say. You're way up there, right? It's really easy. You don't unfairly suffer underneath these people who murder and kill and oppress You do not know what it is like. Forgiveness, he's saying to God, costs something. Forgiveness costs. You're just gonna forgive all they've done? Somebody's paid a price for that. And Jonah just cannot wrap his mind around how God cannot lay out justice for these people because Jonah doesn't see how much God loves and how much it hurts him to see people perish. He doesn't get how close God is going to draw to them. He doesn't get how near God is going to come and experience the cost of forgiveness. Because forgiveness always costs. Forgiveness always costs something, right? I talk about this a lot here, but like if you... If you came to my house and you picked up a guitar or whatever it is and you, you say, I'm gonna play this and you like, I don't know, you just, in, a, in a rage, you smash it. Like, ah, or maybe not in a rage, but you just drop it and it breaks. Ah, ah, I don't know. And I go, hey, don't worry about it. You know, right? There's a cost, right? 
Either you pay for the guitar, or if I say, hey, you know what, I forgive you, then, I'm, then, I, have, then I have to go buy a new one or fix this one or just live without a guitar, right? Forgiveness always costs something. And Jonah's like, God, what is this costing you? He has no idea the price that God will pay coming in the flesh as Christ, dying on the cross, facing this kind of injustice, facing more injustice than Jonah can ever dream of. God knows and he cares and he draws near. God is bringing about his own rule. Nineveh is not gonna rule forever. God's bringing about his own rule. Jesus shows up way after this, right? Jesus shows up, God in the flesh. He shows up later and, and he begins to preach and he, what he's preaching about, what he's teaching about is the kingdom of God. He keeps saying, uh, here's what the kingdom of God is like. Here's what the kingdom of God is like and how it's going to be advanced. And, and this is, the, the, it's managed all through the New Testament. The kingdom of God is advancing in this beautiful way where the lame walk, the blind see. Uh, it, it's generally the powerful did not like Jesus. People who had authority for the most part did not love Jesus. It, It was the people who were outside, who had no power, who had no authority, who had faced injustice, who had seen what it cost them for others to have power and authority. And so it's this great, amazing news. How, and they want him to be king, and they want him to rule, and they want him to get rid and drive out all of the evil and the wickedness. And this God who has all of the power in the universe, this God man, all the power in the universe at his disposal, sets aside everything that he could have to draw near to us, to love us, and to die. God's kingdom moves forward different than Nineveh's kingdom. It moves forward different than Jonah wants to see it move forward. It moves forward in this crazy, crazy way through laying down, through the people in authority, the people who have power, the one who has the most power, setting it aside to see others flourish. That's the way the world is supposed to work. And one day it will. So here's the thing. God's kingdom advances, right? Not through him just throwing out justice. It advances not through the accumulating power and authority and then using it to get our way. The kingdom of God advances in the world in the craziest way. It's through people laying down their lives, what they could have for themselves to see others flourish, and here's the crazy thing about it. it. It advances that way, not just in the world, but it advances that way in our heart, right? The way that we see love grow, the way that we see patience grow, and in all of the beautiful fruits of the spirit, the things that we really want deep in our core, the way that it advances is when we set aside what we could have for us, when we find what we can have for us, and we set that aside to see other people who do not deserve it flourish. The way that we do that is by absorbing pain, absorbing injustice. This is what you see Christ do, right? All the way through the New Testament, you see him absorbing these things. This is so important. Here's the deal. What this tells us is that God cares about justice, that God cares about all these things, that he cares about the advancing of the kingdom. Here's what this means for you, right? This is why this is huge, right? One is, thing it means is this. Uh, the worst thing that's happened to you is not the most important thing about you. Does that make sense? We sing this song here, uh, I love. It actually breaks some of the rules. We have like, it's pretty hard to get a song <laughs> done here, right? Because it's got the past, like all these check gates. Uh, and it breaks one of the kind of like, one of our kind of cardinal like, hey, here's the thing we look for. But, but it's so important. Uh, the message in this song, it's one of the only ones we sing that says this. It says that the thing that's been done to you 
God has time to fix. He loves you and he runs to you and he pursues you. It's a song about how he pursues those who, had, who hurt and he has time to heal you and make you into what he would have you to be. He will never abandon you. This is so true. Because God cares about justice, he cares about what's been done to you, he has drawn near to you. You need to know the most important thing about you is not what happened to you if you've been hurt and wounded. If you've seen injustice, if you have suffered, that is not the ultimate thing. It can be so easy to believe that's the most important thing about you. It it is not. It is that the, the God of the entire universe died to love you well because he loves you so much. That's the most important thing about you. Here's what it also means. It means it gives us purpose. It gives us meaning. There's something in life. Your, your life is not just trying to figure out what to binge next uh, until you die, right? Which is good news. That's a horrible way to live. You have purpose and meaning. Here's the crazy part. God advances the kingdom. For some reason, he advances the kingdom in the world through you and me. Not just through goody-goody two-shoes, but through broken people like Jonah, he advances the kingdom. Uh, Through messed up people, he advances his kingdom. Uh, Here's the deal. Uh, Here's how. Here's how we do it. We learn We learn how to forgive and we learn how to absorb pain. We are so interested in everything going right. This is what we deserve. This is what we don't deserve. Here's what we have to do. You have to, one, know that your heart's incredibly deceitful, right? That your heart is constantly tricking you about what's important. And you need to know that you yourself are full of injustice, that you are prone to abuse power. Any power that we have, we are prone to use it for our own fulfillment, to manipulate. And we have to find that and root it out. Ask God to help us root out, for him to root out the places in our heart where we manipulate and use our power. And we do it in relationships all the time. It's just constant. How we take the advantages that we have. I mean, right? It's, it's but the thing in marriage that you work through constantly, right? Like it's, it's, you just have to work through constantly how do I set aside what I want and what I could do and what I could have influence over to see my spouse flourish, right? It's constantly what it is. Uh, early on, Wendy was, gosh, my wife is so kind. She, early on in, in, in marriage, like she looked at me one day and just said, we were having a disagreement and she said, I don't know what to do. I'm never going to win an argument with you. And the part of, there was a part of my brain that said, well, that's great news, right? Like I'm just going to, I'm going to win always, right? That's great news. And then there's another part of my brain that says, is that kind of marriage you want to be in? Where you're just a bully? That's what she was saying. She didn't, I mean, she said it nicely, but what she's saying is like, you're a bully. I don't want to be a bully. So how do you take this thing where I'm going to use words and, and like throw them at 900 miles an hour and she's going to look at me and be like, I don't even know what to say to that 17 paragraph soliloquy that you just delivered about why the refrigerator doors open, right? Like I, I, like I would do that and she would just be overwhelmed and, and go like, no, how do I set aside not be a bully, but to see her flourish? And she had to teach me how to do that, right? Because I didn't know how. And and so working through that 21 years later, how to not be a bully, how to to see her flourish in places that I could win, not trying to win, but trying to see her flourish. That is a thing that I just struggle with, but that's what it is. He will use you and I in moments like that to advance the kingdom, not in our heart, not only in our hearts, but in our marriages and our relationships, the other thing that we have to do as we, do, as we, as we learn to do this is, is we have to learn to forgive. And forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness takes time. It comes in little payments, right? Yeah, I, I, 
there's no way to just like, if someone's deeply wounded you, to just go like, all right, I forgive you and move on. I, I failed at that miserably this week. This week, I became bitter and made snide comments and was disrespectful and the kingdom of God did not advance in my heart in forgiving this week. The kingdom of man made great strides in my heart in bitterness and in that relationship, right? There's always a cost paid because I just... So we have to make these little payments where, you know what, where we could make a snide comment and we just choose not to. We could gossip or say a thing about this person and we just don't. They come to us and we're deeply wounded and we don't know what to say and we just keep our mouth shut. Forgiveness is paid out over time that way. It moves in our heart that way slowly, slowly, slowly. And as we deliver out that and learn to do that, the kingdom of God goes forward. Another thing, being convenienced. I heard somebody say one time, if you're not being inconvenienced, I don't know if you're really in community. Like I, that's probably, a, like I, I, can't think of any, I can't think of a way that's not true, right? Like, like if you're gonna be in community, there's always gonna become a moment where you have to put on pants and go to somebody's house, right? That's just inconvenient. Even if you wanna do it, you're like, uh, now, right now? Like I go now? What about 30 minutes? But then I'll change my mind and figure out an excuse that I don't have to go at all. We're always gonna be inconvenienced. Yes, be inconvenienced to love people well. The kingdom of God moving forward in your heart and in the world as we forgive and then we live life together. And then, fight for the powerless. It's all through scripture. Proverbs 31 says this, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge right, right, righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Jeremiah said this, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness, deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who is robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. All of our religious activity means absolutely nothing to God if we are not pursuing justice in our hearts, in our relationships, and in the world. It says this in Amos 5. God's talking to his people. <laughs> he says this, he says, I hate I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Peace offering of your fatted animals, I'll not even look at them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Instead, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is what we want in our hearts, in our relationships, in our city, in our world. And this is what is coming. And the way that we advance it is the way that Christ advances it. Learning to forgive, learning to see that God is a God who, yes, he's a God of justice. He is also a God eager to forgive. At the drop of a hat, the second we repent, he forgives. What an amazing thing. Here's what it takes giving your life, giving your affection, giving your heart to God, to Christ who came and died. It's through faith in him and faith alone that we experience this grace of undeserved forgiveness that makes it possible for us to then go out and live that way in the world. This is what we do. This is how a kingdom advances. This is how it moves throughout the whole world. Let it rain down in our hearts and in our minds and in our churches and our families and our neighborhoods and all through the world. Let's pray. Father,
the, great, the greatest injustice ever done, the crucifixion of your son, God become killable and dying on a cross that we may have life, standing in our place. What a beautiful, beautiful injustice. Give us the courage, to, to, the strength. Help us to learn from the example that you set, that the kingdom moves forward, that we, when we face these tragedies, when we tr- face these, these, we all will face them, things that just aren't right, things that just aren't fair. We go through things that we do not deserve. May we see them as ways that the kingdom moves forward. When we properly place them in our heart and mind and trust and believe that you are moving your kingdom forward through us, through our response to this. God, help us root out the places in our heart where we think that we're being selfless, where we think that we are doing good, but instead we're just self-serving. Help us be aware of how curved in we are on ourselves and help us instead to come out of that curve and lift our eyes high as we look at the cross and we see the beauty of what was accomplished there. That our sin was paid for there. That we have life through that. That that's how much our sin costs, but also it's how deeply loved we are. May these realities shape us and change us and move us. Make us more like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.